Let's turn to what, what God has laid on my heart this morning to share. It's not a very long sermon, but it is something which I have been sharing for some time now. Uh, and it has something to do with the things that I have been sharing. So we'll see how it, how it all works out. I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 4 for the time. And then we will look at some other passages too. Will you turn with me to Genesis chapter 4? And we all know it's a story of Cain and Havel, or Abel. Cain and Abel. Uh, in English, the word Abel looks like Abel, <laughs> but in the Hebrew, it means a little different. Uh, <clears throat> now, Adam and Eve are outside the garden. They are not in the garden, they have been thrown out, and this is their story. Now, Adam knew or experienced Eve, his wife, and she brought forth or conceived or created, you know, any of those translations would be fine, uh, and bore Cain. Cain saying, I have gotten, you know, that is the word, I have gotten, I have brought forth, I have, you know, a man with the help of God. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground, a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock uh, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not, if you do, not do well, sin is crouching at, its, at, at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground or divorced from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. But And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of the wanderer, that is Nod, east of Eden. May God, through his spirit, open his word 
so that we may understand what he has to say this morning. <clears throat> now, actually chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel, in some ways is, throws us back to the story of Adam and Eve. There's a lot of parallels in both these stories. One happens in the garden, one happens outside the garden. You know, there is God coming down to Adam and saying, where are you? Here he comes and asks Cain, where is your brother? But the intensity in, in the, 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 the story in, you know, of Adam and Eve in the garden, the intensity is different. But compared to Cain and Abel's story in chapter 4, the intensity is much more sharp. You know, the ground, you'll have to, you know, at least Adam had the hope that the ground would yield if he worked it. But here he is divorced from the ground. The ground is going to be relentless, you know, in its way that it will not give its fruit. So there are parallels in both these stories. But we find starting chapter 4 a stable family. A family which is, you know, have gone through a upheaval. They have been thrown outside the garden and now they have a child. And by verse 16, what you see is an unresolved alienation. Cain has left the family. He has gone to the land of Nod, where he is a wanderer. The Bible never talks of him as being settled. He is a wanderer, wandering. He is rootless. He is not grounded anymore. You know, he is a wanderer. It's a story of two brothers, like Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau, the prodigal sons, the prodigal son, right? It's the story of two brothers. So you see the vertical crisis in chapter 3, where Adam and Eve has broken their relationship with God through, because of their rebellion, because of their doubt, which results in their action of disobedience. And you see in chapter 4, you see that vertical split is now you know, evident in the horizontal split. Now it's a brother against a brother. A brother violates another brother. The story is now well known. We all know the story of Cain and Abel. Therefore, we must be careful not to make it routine. We should also be careful not to moralize the story. Is there anyone who, you know, who thinks... You know, is, does anyone have another opinion that murder is wrong? It's, we all know murdering someone is wrong. Is that agreed? We all know to murder someone is wrong. So be careful not to moralize the story. So what is it? What is the focus of this story? It's a dust, the, it is the destiny of the murderer. It is about a skewed relationship with God because a brother has been violated. The story is about God's dealing with a murderer. The story is about Cain, actually. Abel is, by the way. It is a story about a skewed relationship with God because a brother has been violated. Verses 1 and 2. Now the word Cain 
It comes from the word canon or kayan, kayin, which means it could mean several things. It could mean to get, to create, to acquire. Basically, what you see, Cain, the anglicized form of that name, is basically he's an acquirer. He who seeks to ground himself in his possession. And for that, real estate is very important. Do you know why real estate is called real estate? Any idea why real estate is real? The only thing, even you will find that Solomon talks about it, is the only thing which is real, which outlasts us and stays on forever, almost, is land. Everything else goes. Your money, the value, you know, inflation, deflation, whatever it is, money goes. Your, your metal can, you know, it can go. But one thing remains, that's the land. That is why we call it real estate. The real wealth has always been land. Even in our world today, if you have a property, a piece of land, you know, you say, oh, you know, I can see it as something for my retirement. You may have a lot of money in the bank, but that will lose its value or maybe appreciate in value, whatever it is. But there is always a danger of that. So, he, for which ground and land is equally important. So he was the acquirer. Cain grounds himself in his possessions, for which the ground is important. And he is a farmer. Now, Abel, the word Abel comes from the word Hevel. So there is an expression in the Old Testament which is called Hevel Hevalim. Hevel Hevalim, which means, translated, vanity of vanities. Do you know where that word comes from? Where you find that translation? Ecclesiastics. Hevel simply means the steam. You know on a cold winter night when you walk out and when you speak, the, the steam that comes from your mouth because the change in temperature you know, within you and outside, the steam that comes and then just disappears. That is his name. He is a vapor. He is, you know, he is... It's, it's nothingness. Hevel means vanity. That is what Abel is. So Abel is dismissed while Cain is the embodiment of vitality. One is a farmer while the other is a shepherd. Now it's verses 3 to 5 we see the story and that defines the plot. Now we are going to presume here is the worship of Yahweh. Uh, in spite of verse 26, what does verse 26 of chapter 4 say? It says, to Sheth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. But we want to, notwithstanding verse 26, here the worship of Yahweh is presumed. Now, what we see here is, both the brothers do what is appropriate. Both brothers bring an offering to the Lord. Both had reasons to anticipate acceptance. No hint of hostility between the brothers. The picture that you have here is a family simply at worship. There is, both brothers are doing what is appropriate. They bring an offering. Both had reasons to anticipate acceptance. There is no hint of 
you know, sibling hostility, simply a family at worship. Humanly speaking, where does trouble come from? It does not come from Cain. Neither does it come from Abel. You know where it comes from? It comes from Yahweh. It comes from God. Trouble doesn't come from Cain or Abel. It comes from God. How do I say that? With no explanation, Yahweh chooses to accept one and reject the other. Now you may say, no, he didn't come with the blood. He came with the, you know, he, he brought fruit from the cursed ground, which is not acceptable. Nothing of that nature is mentioned here. See, this is the discipline of good exegesis. Yes, there are reasons which we read in Hebrews. There are reasons which we'll read in First John chapter 3. But when you stick to this passage, there is no hint, there is no explanation whatsoever given to Cain why God accepts Abel's sacrifice as opposed to his own. He chooses not to give any explanation other than saying that, you know, you know, I accept Abel's sacrifice as compared to yours. Yahweh exercises freedom and somebody is not happy. Water Bergman puts it this way, there is nothing of Yahweh preferring cowboys over farmers. There is nothing of God preferring cowboys to farmers. The rejection of Cain is not reasoned. There are no explanations. There is nothing to indicate, at least here, that God must discriminate or prefer one over the other. But I want to, you to listen to this very, very carefully. Now what I'm going to say. Here, if there be any comparison, if there be any comparison, it is, the comparison is not between these two brothers. The comparison is what is being done and what could have been done. The comparison, if there is any, is not between these two brothers. What Abel brought or what Cain brought. The comparison is between what Abel brought and what he could have done. Or what Cain brought and what he could have done. That is the comparison. The comparison is not between Abel and Cain. If you look at the sacrifices, you had sacrifices where, you know, grains were offered, vegetables were offered. So the comparison here is not between two brothers. The comparison here is strictly between what one, could, what one did and what one could have done if there is any comparison. I say that for some reason. We will look at that. Okay? But I want to remind you, sometimes when God exercises his freedom, someone or somebody is going not going to like it. That is the truth of the matter. Life is unfair. Nobody wants to hear that, right? Life is unfair and God is free. Life is unfair and God is free. But someone made a very insightful statement when Peter Malley says this, <clears throat> one must never forget life is unfair. But sometime with a bit of luck, this works in your favor. One must never forget life is unfair. 
But sometime with a bit of luck, this works in your favor. Let me explain it to you. You know, my wife has been trying to get a position. And she sees all these people who have the right connection, seems to get a job. She says, it's unfair, it's unfair. But I want to ask her, when she gets a job, there might have been some others who were better than her. So was not life unfair for them? Life is unfair. We live in a fallen world. When you get a job, when you get something, someone else has been deprived. When hundreds of people apply for a job, it's not because you got the job, not because you were the best, but because God chose to give it to you. There is always someone who is going to say, I have not been treated fairly. But the fact of the matter is, life is unfair and God is free. Never forget that. We clamor for fairness in our lives, but we forget that sometimes when favors are granted to us, it is seen as unfair by the other. Life is unfair, God is free. Life is not a garden party anyway, right? Chapter 2 of Genesis and verse 16, God tells Adam and Eve, you can eat of all the trees in the garden but one. It is not a garden party. Life is not a garden party. Life has its own rules and regulations. You break it, you violate it, you will pay a price for it. You know, in fact, what would have been better? The family perhaps would have gotten along better without this God. But the problem is, he is there. However we explain the problems of life, God or otherwise, often it causes our face to fall, as we see in chapter 5. You know, means people who go away from God and people who come to God may have the same reasons. Like, for example, I have heard one of the most common thing that people who go away from Christ is, if your God is so good, he is, so, he is omnipotent, all-powerful, if he can do all things, and if he's a good God, why does he allow suffering? I don't want to do anything with this God. On the other hand, there are people who say, even though there is suffering and pain in this world, I know this God suffers and you know, goes through this pain with me. He's not immune. And that draws me close to him. You see? Some, the same thing sometimes takes you away from God. Sometimes it brings you so close to God. You look at it otherwise. You have God or otherwise. You know, your face will fall. You remove God, you're still not happy. Why there is so much of suffering in this world. You put in God, you may still be not happy. Why does God allow this pain and suffering? Either way, your faces will fall. God or otherwise. I have asked in my life several times, to my own shame, God, if I was not a Christian, I didn't have to go through all this. But the next moment I will say, God, if, I, if you were not there, I would have been, you know, I don't know where I would be. However we explain the problems of life, God or the otherwise, often it causes our face to fall. And the sad or the good news is, he is there to stay. He is not going anywhere. You like it or not, 
God is here. And then we respond when these, you know, we are faced with these situations, we either respond with anger and hatred and we kill and we, or if we don't kill, which is an outward expression of our anger and hate, or we go into depression where we kill our own selves by going into our own selves. But there is a third option, is to submit ourselves to God. Look at verses 6 to 7. It's a curious speech of Yahweh. In the sense, he already knows the answer. What does he say? Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? He is asking, you know, the first alternative. He's asking, you know, he talks of Cain has been free and capable of faithful living. He is told to take responsibility. You know, he is saying, I may not have accepted your offering, but you have an opportunity to set it right. Why don't you do it? But on the other hand, he goes on to say, if you choose not to, that is where it says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? But, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. You must rule over it. What God is saying is that you have a choice. You have a choice. You can have dominion over it. You can rule over it. You don't have to be a victim. You do not have to play the victim anymore. You have the capacity to rule over it. And especially when it comes to you and me, who has been given the gift of the Holy Spirit to say no to sin. The second alternative has three parts. Interestingly, sin here is no longer the breaking of rules. It now has a life of its own. So like in Romans 7 and 17, it says, So now it's no longer I who do it, Paul says, but the sin that dwells within me, when he describes the struggle that he has with sin. The picture that is portrayed here is sin is waiting like a hungry lion ready to leap, an aggressive force ready to ambush Cain. Sin is lethal. There is danger to the life of Cain in how he handles his rage and depression. You know, interestingly, I came across this quote. Frederick Buchner is one of my favorite authors. I love the way he writes uh, in Wishful Thinking, Transform My Thorns. This is what he wrote. Of the seven deadly sins, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospects of bitter confrontation still to come. How are you going to get even with that person? You know, that, that very idea is such, you know, it brings such great joy, you know. Uh, to savor to the last the toothsome morsel. Both the pain you are given and the pain you are going to give back. You know, very, the very thought of it. How am I going to hurt that person? How am I going to hit them right under the belt so it hurts them? You know, it's such a pleasurable thing, you know. In many ways, it is a feast fit for the king. Then he goes on to say, the chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. What you're wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. 
always remember that sin has a desire for cain sin lusts after cain with an animal hunger it is an animal earning for destructiveness that will destroy both the victim and the perpetrator that is the problem with rage it not only destroys its victim but it also destroys you it destroys both by verse 8 it is over and done waiting sin had its dangerous way cain has not ruled but has been ruled overcome by the lust that lies in ambush so in verses 9 to 6 we have a lawsuit go home and look at it in 9 and 10 verses 9 and 10 we have an investigation and by sentence it's verses 11 and 12 there is a sentence and in verse 16 you see the final banishment he is sent away look at verse 9 the response of cain to his you know to to the investigation of god what does he do he tries to dismiss the point and limit the scope of his responsibility in verse 13 we see in response to his punishment what does he say hey it is too much here we do not see remorse we do not see repentance we do not see him ready to give up his rage or anger there is no thought of reconciliation with god or with anyone for such a person you know what remains the only thing that remains for such a person is fear now the murderer is fearing that he will be murdered what is happening here this guy he has no remorse no repentance he is not ready to give up his anger there is no hint of reconciliation for such a person what remains is fear the murderer is fearing that he is going to be murdered that is his problem now he doesn't want to make peace and now the only thing that is left is fear fear that the murderer will be himself murdered the question that i ask often is how much energy is used guarding the awful hidden burden of anger you know it requires energy to hold your anger right you know to be keep on that rage you have to fuel it right you have to fuel that rage oh that brother that sister this person they said something which was not right they hurt me you know you have to keep that in your memory and for that you have to have fuel for it you have to have energy for it and in the long run it will tire you out it will make you an old man or a woman before it is time before it is time it will bring you to a grave vexation killeth a man good old english which is found in proverbs how much of life is bottled up because reconciliation would mean the end of grasping and letting go how much of life is bottled up how much we stop living because it's also bottled up we don't want to extend a hand and say you have hurt me brother but still you know will you forgive me will you will you receive me again i have wronged you maybe you have wronged me but i want to tell you i don't want you to hold, i don't want that to hold anger against you i want to stretch out and say i love you you know life becomes so much more easy to live your energies you know means that is a interesting thing when you do what god wants the vigor and strength that comes from the freedom that we have in jesus christ is something different 
It's amazing. It gives us a new focus. It tells us how we can leave aside everything and move ahead to the goal that is looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, doing the things that he is calling us to do. But how sad, how tragic is the life which chooses to hold on to that anger, which chooses to be bottled up inside, filled with you know, rage and anger and bitterness, not wanting to let it go, which is... It's like an acid which eats us from inside and slowly it comes out. It's a terrible thing. The good news of Genesis 4 is we need not live such a life. And what does God tell Cain? You must rule it. You must rule it. You have a choice. You don't have to live like that. You must rule it. There is something more about this wonderful God that I speak this morning, this afternoon. There is something amazing about this God and what is that? God does not let go of the unreconciled one. What does he do? What does he do? And the Lord put a mark on Cain lest any who found him should attack him. God does not let go of the unreconciled one, does not stop calling the unreconciled one. On the other hand, you know what he does? He puts a mark on Cain. It's a mark of grace and a mark of shame. It is both at the same time. When people see that mark on Cain, they would not dare come anywhere close to him to harm him. But at the same time, that Mark carries the shame of having of, of someone who has violated his brother. But at the same time, we see the common grace of God, which reigns, which sends rain on the wicked and the good equally, which gives prosperity to the wicked, to the evil, and to the good equally from time to time. We see a gracious God. He doesn't let go of the unreconciled brother or sister. He doesn't let go of those who are still angry with themselves. He doesn't let go of people in pain. He doesn't let go of them. He chases after them. He goes after them like a father wanting them to come back. Because and he here in this case we find that he puts a protective mark on Cain. God does not let go of the unreconciled one, does not stop calling. He puts a mark on Cain. It talks both of his shame and his security. Biblical faith is clear. Violation of a brother is a deadly act. Let me tell you this. Violation of a brother is a deadly act. By verse 11, Cain is a dead man. The protective mark of verse 15 at least indicates an anticipation of resurrection. It announces that God has not lost interest in the murderer or given up on him. And now listen to this very carefully. My friends, I want you to listen to this very, very carefully. The daily frictions, the daily frictions, the misunderstandings, the conflicts, the anger, the rage between brothers and sisters have come to be seen as ordinary and routine. We say, oh, it's okay. That brother doesn't like me, it's fine. That sister has a problem with me, it's fine. We are come to see these things, the frictions, the daily frictions, the daily, you know, the misunderstanding, the conflict, the anger, the rage between brothers and sisters has come to be seen as ordinary, routine and accepted. But what I want to tell you this morning is this. 
what you and I see as ordinary and routine and accepted way of life are linked to issues of life and death. These are not ordinary matters. It is linked to issues of life and death. I want to read to you, even in closing, 1 John chapter 3. And I will read from verse 11 on. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, sisters, that the world hates you. How do we know we have passed out of death into life? Because we love our brothers and sisters. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him or her. The things which has become routine, accepted and ordinary way of living are linked to issues of life and death. Let me remind you. Don't take it lightly. If you feel slighted, if you feel like you have been misunderstood, if you are carrying anger and hatred in your heart towards anyone, settle it now because these are matters which are related to life and death. He goes on to say, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Verse 19, By this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart. How? Because we keep his commandments and do what he pleases. But what is his commandment? That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. How do we know we have passed from death to life? Or when we become like Cain, murderers. You know, when you stop loving your brothers and sisters, when hate rules, when you, when you nurse misunderstanding and conflicts and, you know, anger towards one another, you're still, you're still dead. You are a murderer. You need to move out from there. Let me end this with a story. Abraham Lincoln um, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to read an excellent biography on him written by someone recently. It's, and the person who read it said it is an excellent story, means a biography of this man. He had such wisdom, and I wonder sometimes where he got it from. But this is what it is. This is an incident in his life. Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of War, Edwin Staten, <clears throat> was angered by an army officer who accused him of favoritism. Staten complained to Lincoln, who suggested that Staten write the officer a very sharp letter. <laughs> Staten did, <clears throat> and showed the strongly worded note to the president. And then Lincoln asked him, what are you going to do with it? Surprised, Staten replied, send it. Lincoln shook his head 
And this is what he said. You don't want to send that letter. Put it in the stove. That's what I do when I have written a letter while I'm angry. It's a good letter and you had a good time writing it and you feel better. Now burn it and write another. My friends, my prayer this morning is this. Whatever it is in your heart, whatever it is, it's time you put that into the stove. Let it burn. Write a new letter which says, I love you. I want to hold you close to me. I want to see you grow. I want to empower you in the power of Christ. I want you to be better than me. I want you to grow to love Jesus more than me. I want you to be used more than me. I want you to become more Christ-like so that I can follow you. Will you write that letter? Throwing away all those letters which you have written into the stove and start a new page where love will reign and in so doing, we will once again testify to the fact what the grace of God can do in our lives to make us a people of whom we will be proud to display as trophies of grace. Not only to this world, but in the world to come. Not only to the people around us, but to principalities and powers out there so that God may get all the glory that everybody will be awestruck when you know, people look at us and say, wow, I know now a little bit of what the grace of God can do. That is my prayer and that is my desire for you, my dear people. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness in giving us another Sunday. Thank you, Lord, for loving us so much. Thank you for not giving up on us, Lord. Thank you for enabling us through your spirit. Oh, Lord, the power to rule over those desires, to rule over those things, oh, Lord, which comes in the way of living for you. Oh, God, help us to love our brothers and our sisters where we will be, where we will be willing to die for them, where we will be willing to see them go ahead of us. So that they, oh Lord, our lives will be something which will, be, which, which will prompt them, which will encourage them, which will help them to be more like Jesus, Lord. In so doing, oh Lord, if we were to come behind, it's fine, Lord. It's fine. Lord, we want to thank you for this wonderful afternoon. Thank you for the wonderful time that you gave us to worship you. Thank you for the love that your son has for us that he should even speak to us this morning. Thank you, Lord, for using me to share your word. Will you send us with your blessing? Will you make us a people who will be more like you? Thank you for having heard our prayers, for we ask and offer it in Christ's name. Amen.